Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I am Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I am really thrilled to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. Uh, I know that you must have noticed all the commotion outside the auditorium tonight, hard, to, hard not to notice it, um, but I can assure you that it's all for a good aim in, uh, in a few days, just a few days this Friday, in fact, we will be opening a spectacular exhibition of our newest acquisition, which is the world's greatest collection of antique miniature trains and toys. So I know you'll want to return with your children and grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and uh, young friends. The show will be on view through President's Day. Tonight, we inaugurate a very special lecture series featuring our new distinguished Lerman Institute fellow at the New York Historical Society, Andrew Roberts. This wonderful new fellowship has been made possible thanks to the generosity of our great trustee and our great Lincoln scholar, Lewis Lehrman. I want to thank Mr. Lehrman for his support of this new fellowship. <laughs> Leave it to Lou Lehrman to go right to the intellectual heart of this institution by providing support for a scholar who's been called the greatest military historian of our era. Now, I was lucky enough to inherit Lou as a trustee when I arrived here um, just a little over 10 years ago at the New York Historical Society, and I have basked ever since in his reflected glory, have, as have all the rest of us at this institution. So thank you so much, Lou, for your great scholarship, your wisdom, your great friendship over these past 10 years. Terrific things that you've done for our institution. I also want to thank and recognize uh, Lewis Lehrman's fellow trustees, our board chair, Pam Schaffler, the chair of our executive committee, Roger Hertog, and trustees, James Basker, Susan Danilo, Beth Dater, and Michael Weisberg, all here with us this evening. And uh, somewhere in this room or on his way is uh, our great friend, the historian, Cy Bunting, as well. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question-and-answer session. We're going to ask you to please come up to the aisles to my left and my right and stand behind our microphones. We do this so that everyone in the auditorium and those who listen to our recorded podcasts can hear your question. Following the program, please do join our speaker for a book signing. Books can be purchased in the museum store to my left. We are so very pleased to welcome distinguished historian and journalist Andrew Roberts this evening, who, as I've said, is the Distinguished Lerman Institute Fellow at the New York Historical Society. Andrew Roberts has dazzled millions of readers and viewers with his brilliant insights into history, history's protagonists, and policymaking over the course of history with 13 books and many, many lectures and media appearances to his credit. His two volumes on World War II, Masters and Commanders, and The Storm of War, together constitute a remarkable sweeping panoramic behind-the-scenes tour of policymaking during the period bottom-up. Those of you who have read Mr. Roberts' newest book already, Napoleon, which is the subject of his remarks this evening, you will have noticed and appreciated his customary flair and keen historical eye. As one reviewer so aptly and succinctly put it, Andrew Roberts has delivered the goods again. 
What makes this volume unique is that it is the first Napoleon biography to make full use of the treasure trove of Napoleon's 30,000-odd letters, which only began being published in Paris uh, a short time ago in 2004. The book is also the fruit of years of research. Mr. Roberts admits that this book took more time than the seven years that Napoleon spent both on Elba and St. Helena. Uh, research that included visiting nearly all of the Napoleonic battlefields. He writes for the Sunday Telegraph, and he reviews history books and biographies for numerous journals. He is a director of the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation in New York, and he was awarded in 2012 the William Penn Prize, an award whose other recipients include President Ulysses S. Grant and Walt Whitman. Napoleon, A Life will be accompanied by a three-part BBC TV series, and hot off the press, it has already won a major prize. It won last week the Grand Prix of the Fondation Napoléon in Paris, and it's on the New York Times bestseller list. Before we begin, as always, I'd like to ask that you please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speaker, Andrew Roberts, to the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour to be invited to address you today, and um, thank you very much indeed, Louise, for those uh, those very kind words. And also, uh, congratulations to everybody who who managed to make it uh, on time. I don't include my wife in this, uh, (laughs) but uh, nonetheless, when she does turn up, please don't embarrass her by staring or or anything like that. I'd also like to preface my remarks um, by saying what a tremendous honour it is to be the uh, Distinguished Fellow, um, uh, the Lehrman Fellow of the New York Historical Society. Um, I am a tremendous admirer of, uh, of Louise and Lou Lehrman and everything that they've done philanthropically, but also of Lou's books and uh, the fun that we have at lunch Uh, plotting who the next great uh, leader is going to be is one of the the, uh, true pleasures of this fellowship. So thank you very much indeed for uh, for them. I'm going to talk to you about a country (coughs) whose politics were in gridlock, with no way out because of the intransigence of the major political parties and the near impossibility of modernising the constitution. This country was fighting two wars in different places, but against the same ideology, um, and they proved very expensive with not much to show for them. It had a major problem over immigration, uh, with politicians too ideologically opposed to uh, suggest any common sense solutions. It had a very serious problem with gun crime, uh, especially in rural areas, and it was being forced to start to share its superpower status with a major economic rival. Uh, its economy was saddled with a fiendishly complex tax code uh, that only seemed, to, uh, only seemed to benefit the lawyers, um, who more, moreover had far too much political power in that country. I'm speaking, of course, ladies and gentlemen, about France in 1799, um, which had serious systemic problems. But fortunately, in that year, came to power through a military coup the Brumaire coup of, uh, of November 1799, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, in a sense, of course, one needs to 
apologise um, for imposing on the world yet another um, biography of Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, that was said, by the way, in 1901. Um, <laughs> since then, there have been no fewer than um, 3,500 biographies of him, and more words, sorry, more um, books with his name in the title than there have been days since his death. Uh, so, uh, so why on, uh, on earth uh, impose another one? And the answer, as Louise pointed out, is the Fondation Napoleon's uh, 33,000 letters that have been published, which allow us to see the way in which this man was capable of compartmentalizing his mind. And this uh, lecture is very much going to be about his war leadership, rather than anything to do with his, uh, his, his mind. But the two so totally overlap. Here was somebody, ladies and gentlemen, who was capable of writing a... Um, I'm getting a sort of echo. Is there any way that that can be... Does anyone else notice it, or is it being put up? You're, you're okay with it? Okay, fine, well, I'll try to be too. Um, that what he did was to compartmentalise his mind so much that even on the day that he had a... Um, that he unleashed the French response to the, um, to the um, attack on him in 1805, he was still able to write to Pierre Forfait, who was the uh, prefect in Genoa, uh, to tell him to stop taking his mistress to the opera. Uh, when he was in, uh, on the eve of the Battle of Borodino, one of the most bloody battles in the history of mankind, the most bloody battle in the history of mankind up until the First World War, he was able also to um, sit down and write the rules of a girls' school that he wanted to set up in Saint-Denis, just outside Paris. And a few weeks later... He was able to, after the Russians had burnt down two-thirds of the, um, of the uh, whole of, uh, of, the, of Russia, of, the, of the Moscow, the co-capital of Russia, um, he was able to write the regulations of the Comédie Française. And this is a man who, uh, in his own words, uh, said, different subjects and different affairs are arranged in my head as in a cupboard. When I wish to interrupt one train of thought, I shut that drawer and open another. Do I wish to sleep? I simply close all the doors, and there I am, asleep. And this allowed him to show incredible uh, attention to detail, att attention that uh, today one might think of as being that of a, um, of a, uh, a sort of something akin to a, an actual obsessive. He worried about his men's shoes, about the cooking pots, about the brandy flasks. He, uh, in 1815, as the whole empire was in desperate danger, he was able to um, concentrate on whether or not the, uh, the, the cannons had little pots of axle grease to put on the, uh, on the axles of the cannons. And he was doing this at the same time as hundreds of other uh, very important subjects. Hi, darling. <laughs> Hi, sweetheart. There, there. Okay. I'm a lot calmer now. Um, so he wrote to the uh, Marshal Marmont in Utrecht 
1805, uh, for example, and said, pay great attention to the soldiers and see about them in detail. The first time you arrive at the camp, line up the battalions and spend eight hours at a stretch, seeing the soldiers one by one, receive their complaints, inspect their weapons, and make sure they lack nothing. There are many advantages to making these reviews of seven to eight hours. The soldier becomes accustomed to being armed and on duty. It provides him that, sorry, it proves to him that the leader is paying attention to and com taking complete care of him, which is a great confidence-inspiring motivation for the soldier. He understood the psychology of the, uh, of the ordinary soldier. And, of course he did. He'd been set up as an uh, uh, officer throughout his life. He'd gone to military academy at Brienne when he was a young man. He'd then gone on to the Ecole Militaire in Paris, which is just, uh, which is just on the, uh, the, the, the Eiffel Tower shadow, virtually touches it. Um, it's uh, so central. And, of course, throughout this time, he was taught about how to lead, the, lead, the concept of leadership. He was an amazing uh, reader, uh, especially of history and of um, biography, Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great being his greatest heroes. And he deliberately set himself up as the, um, as the opposite of what were called the big hats, the, uh, the, the officers and the marshals and the generals. He very much wanted the ordinary soldier to be able to come to him directly and to, uh, and to, and to talk to him directly. And they did. They would shout from the ranks um, uh, to him, and he would, uh, he would bat back. He was an extremely funny man. He had a wonderful, uh, dry, ironic sense of humour. And he was able to employ this in a, uh, in a way with the ordinary men that um, set him uh, really above and apart from the rest of the officer corps. Uh, when I talk about big hats, by the way, I hope other people saw the extraordinary amount of money that, was, uh, that, that um, one of Napoleon's bicorn hats fetched at the auction in Fontainebleau um, uh, this weekend. Uh, one bicorn hat of his, there are 19, by the way, in, in existence, fetched $2.4 million. Uh, and was bought by a, a, by, by a South Korean, which shows the extent, both the fascination of uh, Napoleon still today, and also the, the massive geographical uh, extent of it. He understood the concept of rewards, how important it was to reward troops who had shown, um, who had shown courage in battle. After the successful storming of Landshut in the 1809 campaign, Napoleon asked the colonel of the 13th Leger Regiment, who had been the bravest man in the demi-brigade, uh, which is almost like a, a battalion. And the colonel hesitated, possibly thinking it was invidious to pick out any particular individual. Um, so Napoleon asked the officers, who also felt silent, probably for the same reason. And then finally, an elderly captain replied that the bravest man had been the drum major, you have been designated the bravest in a brave regiment, Napoleon told the drum major to cheers from the men, and he made him a chevalier of the Légion d'honneur on the spot. After the Battle of Ratisbon, an old grognard, which is the name given to veterans, meaning grumbler, uh, asked Napoleon for the cross of the Légion d'honneur, claiming that he had given him a, a watermelon um, at Jaffa, uh, ten years before, because it was terribly hot. And Napoleon refused him on such a paltry pretext, at which the veteran added indignity, uh, with, with uh, great indignation, 
Well, don't you recognize seven wounds received at the bridge at Arcola, at Lodi and Castiglione, at the pyramids, at Acre, Austerlitz, Friedland, 11 campaigns in Italy, Egypt, Austria, Prussia, and Poland? At which a laughing emperor cut him short and made him a chevalier of the Legion of Honor with a 1200 franc pension, fastening the cross on his breast there and then. And this, by the way, was a wonderful trick of his. He um, actually had dozens of these uh, things, and he would, during battles, constantly be taking off his own uh, cross of the Legion of Honor and putting it on to brave men. And when his valet, uh, a, a Mamluk, uh, Egyptian-born uh, valet, said to him, look, don't worry, I, I can have it sewn on so it'll stay on in battle. And Napoleon said, you don't understand at all. That's not precisely the opposite of what I need to do. Um, Colonel Marbo, the uh, great cavalry colonel, said it was by familiarities of this kind that the emperor made the soldiers adore him. But it was a means available only to a commander whom frequent victories had made illustrious. Any other general would have injured his reputation by it. And this is very true. You don't see this with the other commanders of the um, Ancien Regime uh, uh, Ancien Regime. Uh, armies. You wouldn't, one could never imagine the Archduke uh, Francis of Austria or indeed the Duke of Wellington interacting individually with the, uh, with the privates in his, uh, in his army in the way that Napoleon was capable of doing. But as well as reward, he also was able to use shame and anger uh, for units that behaved badly. Soldiers of the 39th and 85th Infantry, he said after the Battle of Rivoli when they broke and, and ran, you are no longer fit uh, to belong to the French army. You have shown neither discipline nor courage. You have allowed the enemy to dislodge you from a position where a handful of brave men could have stopped an army. The chief of staff will cause to be inscribed upon your flags, these men are no longer of the army of Italy, uh, which did happen and which afterwards, of course, that demi-brigade, uh, those, those, um, those uh, two demi-brigades, fought far harder to have this ignominy um, expunged from their records and to have their, their original flags back. So he was able to use the concept of uh, shame as well as the overt concept of, uh, of reward. And as a result, you got fabulous esprit de corps in the French army, what was called the sacred fire. And uh, it was also called the French Fury, a sense of allant that, um, that uh, he was able to engender. And he was also able to do this through the creation in 1804, at the time of his um, becoming emperor. Um, he was also able to do this by creating the Marshalate. Now, the post of Marshal of the French Empire actually had no specific role, no specific, um, uh, it was a title, it wasn't a rank, military rank. And it was capable of, um, of enthusing the 26 men who became marshals, and also, of course, all of the people below, the generals, who wanted to become marshals. Uh, almost through its very, uh, through the very nature of it being a, um, a, a title rather than a rank. And it was very much open to people entirely on the basis of merits. Now, this was genuinely revolutionary. Of course, the French Revolution had brought in this concept of meritocracy, one that we take entirely for granted in, um, in modern uh, Western democracies, but which was a completely revolutionary concept. 
of Napoleon's 26 marshals, no fewer than, than 10 of them uh, came from, uh, from the working classes, ranks that had never provided officers before in the French army, let alone, uh, let alone marshals. They included the son of a cooper, Marshal Ney, a tanner, Sancerre, a bailiff, Victor, a brewer, Oudinot, a wealthy peasant in Mortier, a miller in Lefebvre, an innkeeper in Murat, a household servant, Augereau, and the storekeeper stroke smuggler, Massena. Um, although Perignon, MacDonald, Marmont, Berthier, and Davou were scions of the Ancien Regime noblesse, and Poniatowski and Grouchy were General uh, Aristos, 10 is an amazing number to have risen up from the ranks. In fact, you can actually make it 11, really, because Serurier, uh, who said that his um, father had held a royal appointment, which is true, but the royal appointment was that of royal mole catcher. Um, so it's really 11 out of the 26. Now, Napoleon didn't invent either the strategy or the tactics that... Um, brought him no fewer than 46 victories out of his 60 battles. Uh, they were largely the, the great concept of the core, for example, an idea that was uh, universal in Europe from 1812 all the way through up to uh, 1945, was actually invented by the uh, military thinkers after the French defeat of the Seven Years' War. It's, the, it's, a, it's a classic trope of, uh, of military history that it's always the losers of the last war that learn the lessons and put them into, um, into place rather than the victors. And this was uh, very much the case after the French defeat in the Seven Years' War in 1763. It was their thinkers who came up with the ideas like the core system. The core system basically... Uh, happened in such a way that before you had uh, your, your infantry, your cavalry, and your artillery, um, under the core system, you had about 30,000, 20 to 30,000 men who would be made up of infantry, cavalry, and artillery who were able to move separately much faster and also um, would be able to engage the enemy and hold him for long enough for the other cause to uh, come to the rescue. And this also allowed Napoleon, of course, to move his entire army, sometimes on a 90-degree angle. They'd be going in one direction, and because of the core system, he was able to just turn them to the right, as he did in the Ulm campaign in 1805. And um, the entire army would be able to do that. Something was completely incapable. Uh, Marlborough couldn't have done that in the, uh, in, in the previous century. Um, it also, because he had a, each of the corps had it, their own staff and their own medical and their own uh, uh, pay, commissary and the rest, were in effect mini armies. And so Napoleon was able, if he managed to use one corps to, to uh, fix an enemy army in place, he would then be able to envelop, or in some cases double envelop, um, his, his enemy on the battlefield. It was a completely revolutionary concept. Unfortunately for him, uh, it, it was uh, picked up, of course, by the Austrians and Prussians and, uh, and Russians by 1812. But when he was able to use it himself from 1805 to 1812, um, uh, he was uh, universally almost, except for in, uh, in Spain, where he, he himself wasn't present very much. 
victorious. And other concepts, the bataillon carré, the ordre mixed, again, he didn't, think of them, he didn't think of them himself. He didn't invent them, but he did perfect them. Speed was also an absolute essential to Napoleonic warfare. Vitesse, vitesse, toujours de vitesse, he wrote to Masséna during the Landshut campaign of 1809. He was able to move his forces faster, not just because of the core system, um, but also because he lived off the land. Um, he didn't feel that he needed the huge baggage trains to... Uh, to uh, only go as fast as the slowest oxen. He was able to, to move ahead much faster. Um, and he didn't also see sieges as the key factor, rather in the way that they had been very much in European warfare up until then, certainly in the Thirty Years' War and the War of Austrian and Spanish Succession. Um, he believed instead in going for the jugular, in going for the decisive point of the battle field and also ensuring that one decisive battle, regardless of where it was, uh, would give him victory rather than endless sieges of, uh, of towns and, uh, and cities. That allowed him to retain the initiative. His problem was that armies grew far too big. His own army, indeed, by 1812, the army with which he invaded Russia, was actually the same size at 615,000 as the population of Paris. Uh, at that time, and Paris was far, by far and away the largest European city except for London. Uh, and the problem was um, that in the 1812 campaign, um, one of the things that slowed him down was the fact that people, officers would take their carriages and their dress uniforms and their evening dress, and uh, Murat took his chef. Um, that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't the way to fight war by then. But in the early days, especially in the Italian campaign, speed was something that he recognised to be of the essence. His own work habits um, and personal habits were uh, also entirely um, created solely around his, um, his uh, need to show leadership. He would um, eat very... Uh, sparingly, and he would eat whenever he was hungry, rather than at any particular time of the day. There would be rotisserie chickens kept in his 39 palaces, um, constantly going round and round when he was there, and uh, he would eat if he wanted to, and uh, he would never spend more than half an hour um, at, uh, at table. He... Uh, uh, can you imagine being Emperor of France, you know, with that fabulous cuisine and the, all the wonderful wine? He only ever uh, drank Chambertin, and, uh, and usually it was watered down. Um, one of the great missed opportunities of history, in my view. <laughs> um, he uh, would use every moment of the day. He'd often work 18-hour um, days. He would work, um, he, would, he would use every single moment. He would have newspapers read to him in the bath and so, uh, and so on. And sometimes he'd have four people paint him at the same time uh, so as not to, uh, not to waste time sitting for, for portrait painters. He was the ultimate uh, multitasker in that, uh, in that sense. And he, he took very little time even over his mistresses. Um, on, uh, the, on St. Helena, he admitted to having something between six or seven mistresses. Uh, but in my book, I've uh, identified no fewer than 22. Um, actually, in the course of uh, writing this book, especially the reviews, especially the English reviewers, I'm afraid it's very much an English problem not being able to appreciate the greatness of Napoleon. Um, the, um, the English reviewers have equated him to... Uh, to 
Colonel Gaddafi and, and uh, Saddam Hussein on, on one uh, uh, memorable, uh, r ridiculous um, uh, review, and, um, and, and also Silvio Berlusconi. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, he was nothing like Silvio Berlusconi, except in the issue of the mistresses. Um, he was a great man for asking questions that demanded direct answers. Uh, where are we with the Arc de Triomphe, he would say to his interior minister, or will I walk on the, on the Jena Bridge on my return to Paris? He, he wanted to know, uh, he didn't ask general questions that people could, uh, could um, um, uh, give him flummery over. Instead, he asked absolutely direct questions that required um, immediate answers. And there's a marvellous moment in uh, 1811 when he visited Toulouse, and, um, and asked the, to, to congratulate the bridge builder who had built this, this wonderful uh, bridge across the canal, the Midi Canal. And he said, um, asked him a blizzard of questions, as he always did. This was the great Napoleonic thing, was to ask hundreds of questions. And, um, uh, and in that sense, you know, he was a dictator, of course, but he was a good listener. And uh, he realised that the bridge builder, um, who he was talking to, couldn't have built the bridge that he was actually uh, discussing, because he had no idea what the answers were to these, uh, these questions. And it turned out that the bridge builder, the actual bridge builder, had had his place taken by the chief engineer who wanted to pretend that he had built the bridge. So Napoleon, in one of those very, very rare but absolutely delectable moments in history of, um, of, uh, of, of, of um, sort of... Um, decency and, uh, and um, splendid um, justice, gave um, the bridge builder the chief engineer's job. <laughs> Communication was vital, of course. He would do something that is called in French harangue. Now, in English, of course, that implies a, a rant, but it wasn't a rant. All it meant was uh, it was a pre-battle pep talk that would build up the excitement of the troops before they went into attack. He did it at the Bridge of Lodi um, in 1796, very successfully in sending over um, across a tiny little bridge. Actually, the bridge that there is about 15 uh, yards today to the west of the actual old one isn't very big either. One can, one can almost see the, uh, the... It's very, very long, though, 200 yards long. One can see the, um, the way in which these men had to be uh, built up for the attack. They would all drink brandy, of course, needless to say, that was, uh, that was uh, part of it. But also these harangues that he was particularly good at were, um, uh, were part and parcel of it. And one, of course, knows uh, of his fabulous um, capacity, writing capacity for um, proclamations and for orders of the day. Uh, the, the great one, of course, being the one before the Battle of the Pyramids in which he said that 43 centuries are looking down upon you. This was, uh, this was powerful emotional stuff to, uh, to give the troops before they fought. One must speak to the soul, he said. It is the only way to electrify the men. He was uh, tremendously good at news management, at um, uh, propaganda, he controlled the press, of course, as, uh, as a dictator, but he nonetheless also actually dictated paragraphs himself to, um, to the, uh, the monitor, the, 
um, the major paper. And, and these, needless to say, glorified his own achievements and lied terribly about the number of people who, uh, who um, had been killed in his, in his, um, in his campaigns, maximising the enemy by about three times and minimising his own side by pretty much the same amount. And then there are the paintings... Um, uh, David crossing the Alps being the classic example, that magnificent painting of him on the rearing horse uh, pointing to the, uh, the crossing of the Alps. Now, the crossing of the Alps was an, an extraordinary achievement, extraordinary military achievement, um, but he couldn't resist adding on that extra, uh, that extra sense of, of glory um, of him on the, on, on the rearing uh, stallion. Actually, he crossed um, on, a, on a mule, uh, in in uh, in real life, but uh, he was he was there on a donkey for about ninety five percent of it. Um, but uh, but that's a classic example of it. Self control was very important in uh, in Napoleon. In eighteen thirteen, he came up with a, uh, a remark. This is of course after the disaster in uh, on the retreat from Moscow. Over uh, half a million men lost on that uh, on that single campaign itself led to the most terrible scenes, cannibalism and, uh, and the rest. And in 1813, he said, in my own case, it's taken me years to cultivate self-control to prevent my emotions from betraying themselves. Only a short time ago, I was the conqueror of the world, commanding the largest and finest army of modern times. That's all gone now. To think I kept all my composure, I might even say preserved my unvarying high spirits, yet don't think that my heart is less sensitive than those of other men. I'm a very kind man, but since the earliest youth, I have devoted myself to silencing that chord within me that never yields a sound now. If anyone told me when I was about to begin a battle that my, that my mistress, whom I loved to distraction, was breathing her last, it would leave me cold. Yet my grief would be just as great as if I'd given way to it. And after the battle, I should mourn my mistress if I had the time. Without all this self-control, do you think I could have done all the things I've done? And calmness under pressure was very much uh, part of his, um, his war leadership. He used to make jokes during battles. Uh, he went to sleep during the Battle of Wagram, for he needed a nap. Uh, he'd been awake for a week. Um, and he went to sleep for 10 minutes in a battle where there were 1,000 cannon. Uh, being uh, being fired, an extraordinary uh, capacity. Uh, at the Battle of uh, <coughs> Marengo, when a uh, when a uh, aide de camp who was on a uh, horse uh, next to him had his uh, had his Shaco helmet um, uh, blown off by a cannonball, he said, um, "Jolly, you're lucky uh, that you're no longer sorry. <laughs> Jolly lucky you're no taller." That's a that's a wonderful sort of a gag to make during a uh, during a battle. By the way, he wasn't short. Uh, that's another important uh, thing to remember. Napoleon was not the midget that he's been made out to be. He was precisely my height. Uh, <laughs> he was five foot six, which in French, in the 18th, for, for an 18th century Frenchman, admittedly not necessarily for a 21st century Englishman, but for an 18th century Frenchman uh, was the exact, um, uh, exact average height. He could be ruthless when he needed to be. Um, that's shown, of course, in the terrible war crime that he committed at the, um, after the Battle of Jaffa, after the fall of Jaffa, where he had 3,000 Turkish artillerymen um, shot and bayoneted to, to death on the beaches. Um, they had surrendered to him six weeks before and had given their promise 
their, their Pali, during the Pali, they'd given their parole not to fight against the French again. Six weeks later, they were caught fighting against the French, and although, according to the laws of war at the time, their lives were forfeit, nonetheless, it's clearly a, uh, a horrific uh, uh, moral thing to have, uh, to have taken those lives. So he was a ruthless man. But... I um, very much would argue that he was not a warmonger. Uh, of the seven wars of the coalitions that were fought against France and Napoleon, um, he was not responsible for any. He was responsible for the invasion, the appalling, uh, ridiculously opportunistic invasion of Spain and Portugal, but not for the, um, and also, of course, for that of, uh, of Russia in 1812, but not for the other, um, for the other seven wars. Instead, it was Britain who was um, uh, completely committed to the destruction of Napoleon. In 18, uh, for for, uh, much of the period, uh, the Prime Minister, a man called Spencer Percival, was a complete uh, obsessive when it came to trying to destroy Napoleon. He wrote an anonymous pamphlet, which has a rather long um, title, which is observations intended to point out the application of a prophecy in the 11th chapter of the Book of David to the French power. It's not, by the way, uh, the kind of title that publishers would let you get away with today. Um, And in it, he said that the Bible foretold the destruction of uh, of Napoleon um, and that the world was going to end in 1926. Uh, When he was uh, assassinated by uh, by somebody actually who was even more deranged than him, Uh, The uh, next person who became Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, was even more committed to the uh, struggle against Napoleon, to the point that Great Britain uh, dedicated, year in, year out, over 15% of its GDP to uh, subsidising any country on the continent that would be willing to fight against Napoleon. Um, So he wasn't a, a warmonger. Even more extraordinary, although there is... Uh, such a psychological disorder as a Napoleon complex. Napoleon didn't have one. Uh, His invasion of Russia is actually perfectly rational, perfectly logical, when one considers that he'd beaten the Russians twice before um, in the Austerlitz and the Friedland campaigns. He had an army twice the size of Russia's. He had no idea that 140,000 of his men were going to die of typhus, uh, which, um, uh, which wasn't diagnosed until 1811. He had, sorry, 1911. He had so a century after the, uh, after the attack. He had no intention of going all the way to Moscow either. He just wanted to fight on the, on the borders in a short, sharp uh, campaign. He knew perfectly well that the Russians had a terrible winter, and he allowed more time to get from, um, from Moscow to Smolensk than than he'd taken to get from Smolensk to Moscow. But he took the terrible, disastrous decision on the 25th of October 1825, after the Battle of Malayaroslavets, to go north rather than to uh, go back towards the west or the southwest. And that um, that was the thing that destroyed his army and led to the devastation. That key decision of uh, Malayaroslavets uh, was, and when one goes to the battle, 
uh, field, one can see how it was impossible for him to see beyond the battlefield to the point only a few miles to the south where the Russians had actually decided to march off south. So had he actually continued on to Kaluga, he would have managed to have made his way to Smolensk and not had to go back northwards via the Battle of Borodino and, uh, and uh, to see the utter destruction of the Grande Armée. Uh, in the retreat from Moscow. It was uh, one of those touch-and-go things in a decision of many thousands he had to take. He took that one that was disastrous. Um, in the course of, um, of researching this book, I visited 53 of Napoleon's 60 uh, battlefields. Um, and uh, they do show his genius. It's a, uh, it's a wonderful thing to, to go to Acre and see the 12-foot um, wide, thick, walls, uh, crusader-built walls uh, that kept him out of Acre, or to uh, go to the battlefield of Mount Tabor in Israel and see the way in which he was able to bring his army around the back of the Turkish force, taking into account the undulations in the Vale of Jezil there. Um, or Austerlitz, where you can see where still the, the, the mist stays down in the valley, the mist in which he hid Salt's corps of uh, 16,000 men before sending it up <coughs> to smash through the Austro-Russian centre at uh, the Battle of Austerlitz or Rivoli, where you can see again these... these um, one, once you know how the battle goes, you can see, of course, the genius of Napoleon in spotting the central feature of the battle, which in this case is a plateau uh, which goes around... A, uh, which, a river goes around it, and he managed to get half of the Austrian force on the wrong side of the river and annihilate the, the other part on the, on the plateau. And the, the Battle of Friedland, where you climb up this uh, church which the Russian general actually did, Bennigsen actually did at the Battle of Friedland. And you look down and can see how, of course, uh, the way in which the river creates an oxbow lake around the town would turn that place into an absolute death trap if anything uh, happened to the bridges, which, of course, they did during the battle. And each time one can, when one visits these battlefields, one can see the, uh, the coupe de l'oeil of, uh, of the emperor, and how he did what he did. So why then, ladies and gentlemen, did he do so badly at the Battle of Waterloo? Why was that just a series of blunders? And I believe the answer is because he again and again um, failed to stick by the maxims that had made him so successful in earlier campaigns. It's nothing to do with his health or anything to do with his waning powers. The year before in 1814, in the 1814 campaign outside Paris, he'd won uh, four victories in five days. Uh, in fact, instead, at, um, at Waterloo, he split his forces just before the battle, two days before the battle. It was exactly against everything that he'd uh, said. He um, had all the personnel in completely the wrong jobs. His best marshal, Davout, was, uh, he, he left in Paris. Um, marshal Ney, who by that stage had been suffering from terrible uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from being the last man out of Russia, um, he put in, a battle as, in as battlefield commander, who did a terrible job. Marshal uh, Soult, who was a, a decent enough battlefield commander, he made the chief of staff. Which, um, which was also a disaster uh, for him and, uh, and who made terrible mistakes. Um, he was down to only three marshals at that uh, point, uh, Marshal Grouchy, who, of course, he'd sent off with this vast force only two days before uh, from the original set of, uh, of 26. That was the problem at, uh, at Waterloo. But overall, he won 46 
of his 60 battles. Meticulous planning, appreciation of terrain, superb timing, steady nerves, appreciation of the importance of discipline and training, understanding the psychology of the ordinary soldier to create esprit de corps, issuing inspirational speeches and proclamations and controlling the news cycle, um, adapting the modern uh, tactical ideas of other people, asking pertinent questions of the right people, deep learning and appreciation of history, ruthlessness when necessary, the deployment of personal charisma, immense calmness under unimaginable pressure, especially in moments that look like defeat, and almost obsessive attention to detail, rigorous control of one's emotions, and above all, exploitation of a momentary numerical advantage at the decisive point on the battlefield. Ladies and gentlemen, in the remaining eight Lehrman lectures over the next three years, we will see a number of war leaders who display some or several of these attributes. But let's see if we come across anyone who displayed them, all of them, and anything like to the same degree as Napoleon Bonaparte. Thank you very much indeed. Now, if you'd like to ask a question, please approach one of the two standing mics in the aisles. Uh, before asking your question, tell us your name. And out of respect for the other people waiting their turn, uh, please ask one question. Um, preferably an easy one. That would be nice. Uh, two staff members are on hand if you need any assistance. Sir. Uh, Seymour Cohen, sorry I'm going to ask you a tough one. In your previous book, I'll be the judge of that. In the previous book, Storm of War, your chapter on the Holocaust is so aptly uh, called "To the Everlasting Shame of Mankind." Can you comment on the current negotiations over nukes with Iran, in view of the fact that the Iranians talk about the annihilation of Israel, which means another six million Jews? Um. I do you know, I'd say prefer not to, really. Um, not, nothing because of the, not because of the, of the terrible, terrible seriousness of the, uh, of the situation, but just simply that I can't see a Napoleon angle there, really. It's uh, just, you know, of course, I'm... Sorry. I'm, 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 I'm sure I'm just as opposed as you are, sir, to the, to the, to the horror of, uh, of Iran having a nuclear bomb. But um, could we get on, just stick to the subject at hand? Thank you very much. I'm sorry to not help more. Hi, uh, my name is Eric. Um, specifically, you mentioned how you know, Napoleon wasn't really in Spain very often. Do you think, beside, well, what do you think is the reason, besides the brief stint in 1808-1809, where he had about four months he was in command, why wasn't he coming back, especially when in the East, following the drubbing of the Austrians at Wagram, that there was no threat in the East until Russia? Um, yes, the, uh, very good question. Um, the answer is that, of course, he should have stayed in Spain. He should have seen uh, through the 1809 campaign. The reason he came back was um, because, first of all, he felt a um, danger from the threat of the plot between which Fouché and uh, Talleyrand, his, his uh, police minister and his foreign minister, um, had, uh, had been uh, bringing, bringing together, but that wasn't a good enough reason, really. Um, and he also feared the rearmament of Austria, which genuinely was a good reason, because, because Austria did in, indeed attack him in 1809, despite his many offers of, um, of, uh, of peace. But no, 
the way in which what he should have done, of course, was to have gone straight back there after the victory um, over Austria in 1809. Once he'd won the uh, Battle of Wagram, he should have returned to, um, to Spain. He did go to the Erfurt Conference in 1808, which also took him away uh, from what he should have been concentrating on, which was um, driving the, uh, the British off the, uh, off the continent of Europe. Good question. Sir. Uh in your research, have you come across some idea uh, why such a brilliant stra strategist would, having all Europe in his hand, defeating German and Austrian army, he, had, uh, he could oust the British from the Africa without much of a problem. He could uh, basically, without firing a shot, liberate Poland from Russian occupation. He had Turks on his side. So how did he, what was the idea behind going 2,000 kilometers into Moscow when it was absolutely unnecessary? Yes, well, this is, this is an absolute key, uh, key issue. And as I said in the speech, I think, um, he, he had no intention of going to Moscow. He didn't want to go to Moscow. He wanted to fight on the border. He was drawn into Moscow because he had no concept that the Russians were going to fight the sort of astonishing scorched earth uh, campaign that they did, where they destroyed everything in his power and then burnt down two-thirds of their own capital. And there's an uh, there's a great quote from uh, the Tsar, Tsar uh, Alexander I, who, when um, uh, I mean, he couldn't know that. Here, um, Murat pointed out that Russian morale must have been devastated by the constant retreats. How much more of Russia could the Tsar see ravaged before he sued for peace? He couldn't know that Alexander had declared in St. Petersburg that he would never make peace, saying, "I would sooner let my beard grow to my waist and eat potatoes in Siberia." Uh, you know, this was a. This was going to be, um, as the Spanish uh, guerrillas called it, a war to the knife, and um, Napoleon could not understand that there could be no uh, peace whilst there were still French troops on uh, on Russian soil. Sir, hi, I'm Al Hurley. Uh, the book ends of uh, Napoleon's great victories in Egypt and in the the continent, uh, one in the early 1800s, the next in 1805, is the complete destruction of the uh, French Navy. And, and with Napoleon as emperor, why doesn't he do a wholesale upgrade and replacement of the French Navy? Because once Nelson has destroyed the Navy, he's, he's basically landlocked. Yes. Um, well, he tried. He tried after, uh, after Trafalgar, and I think that was a huge mistake. It was uh, after the Battle of Trafalgar, it was quite clear that um, they weren't going to be able to recreate the, uh, the, invasion, uh, the invasion conditions ever before. Beforehand, though, you're interested... You're, no, it was, I'm interested yeah. in why he doesn't... He's the emperor. He can pick the leadership of the French Navy. Yeah. Why is he, why is he so poor? Because none of the admirals there? wanted to fight the Royal Navy, owing to the fact that... Um, I'm going to say the word we here, because I am British. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because we were able to fire uh, three broadsides a minute, and the French uh, were only to be able to fire between one and two. And and so, of course, no admiral is going to want to uh, go to uh, war against, uh, go, go to sea against that. There is no, of all the 46 victories that Napoleon won, not one of them was at sea. He was a total landlubber. He didn't understand the difference. It's quite clear from one conversation that he had with a British admiral on the way to exile in St. Helena uh, between uh, Windward and Leeward. Uh, so, um, 
this was, you're right, a, a giant lacuna in, uh, in this, um, this otherwise brilliant man's um, strategic outlook. So. Hi, my name's Harris Lertzman. Uh, you say that your book was, or is, um, uh, the result of, or takes advantage of the opening of the archives of 30,000 of Napoleon's letters. Yeah. I'm just fascinated as to why, it, what were the circumstances that kept 30,000 of his letters unavailable for two oh, No, no, they haven't been, I, no, no, been available sorry. in French or, or what was it? No, 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 they've, they've been available in, um, for the first time, they're now available in the Fondation Napoleon single, um, I think there are now uh, 13 volumes, and there are another few volumes to come. But no, some of them came out in, uh, were published by Napoleon III in 1853. Um, others came out in dribs and drabs. His love letters to various uh, women came out in their own editions. But this is the first time they've been brought together. Lots of them, for example, have been sold at auction but have, and therefore have never been published. Others are, um, are found in people's attics over the last two centuries. And so this is the first time that they've all been brought together. But no, it's not, it's not the case. They're all brand new by any means. What they do do, though, is show you this incredible um, multitasking mind of his, this compartmentalization that he's able to. So, so the, the, the physical or the, the bringing together of the letters made it, made, gave you insights? Or oh, huge you, numbers what, of insights, yeah. The way in yeah. which he's got 10 balls in the air all at the same time, the way in which he's able to, um, uh, to consider quite so many. And these are just his signed letters. These are just the ones with his signature on. There are plenty of others that went out as orders and things which, uh, which, which didn't. Um, no, it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a massive treasure trove. But the glory of this is that the sheer scholarship that the people at the Fondation have, uh, have put in, there's a group of about eight of them that have been working on this now for well over 12 years. Um, they've footnoted every single person mentioned in each of the letters. They've met, they've, they explain where the letter's from. So, and you see, sometimes, some uh, Bonapartist um, uh, propagandists would uh, add things to letters, would cut letters, would physically snip out things that people, uh, that they thought, you know, didn't, uh, didn't make the emperor look good, and they would stick in completely false uh, letters, um, for, for, um, forgeries, to, uh, to, to change the historical record. And what these guys have done is to, um, is to you know, winnow away the, um, uh, the, the wheat from the chaff. It's fabulous. Just a, a very quick follow-up. You, you've sort of described the Olympian aspects of Napoleon's life. Did access to those letters give you uh, an insight to any human quirks that oh, have not, yes. have not well, been released? No, absolutely. No, his, his, the human uh, quirks are, uh, are, the, are the delightful um, uh, things, really, the delightful side to him. One of, my, one of the um, surprises for me was the, uh, was the great sense of humor that he had. Uh, one doesn't necessarily think of, uh, of, of him as a funny man, but he, he, he was constantly making these lovely, dry, ironic uh, remarks. There's a great moment where the Grand Almoner of France, the Archbishop de Rohan, um, wrote to him an incredibly oleaginous letter at the time of the uh, coronation, saying, uh, saying that he would love to have the opportunity to lay down his life for the emperor. And Napoleon, in the top right-hand corner of the, uh, of the letter, wrote, please pay the Grand Almoner 12,000 francs out of the theatrical fund. <laughs> <laughs>
There's another moment, sorry, so I just run out of the gag, Napoleon gag, uh, was uh, when a uh, lunatic, uh, an escaped lunatic, um, came up to him at the, uh, at the opera and told him that he was in love with the Empress Josephine. And Napoleon said, you seem to have made a curious choice of confidant. <laughs> sorry, yes. Uh, yes, one of your reviewers, a uh, rather well-known historian, uh, was somewhat critical about the fact that he felt that you didn't give enough weight to the bad aspects of Napoleon, his destructiveness, his melagomania, and appreciated him too much in terms of his net effect on humanity. And I was wondering if you could comment on, on, on that views. observation <laughs> uh, and whether, you know, what your view really is about his net effect on on humanity. Well, as I think I mentioned earlier, I don't believe that he was a megalomaniac, um, and so it would be weird if I were to comment too much about his megalomania. Um, the, um, he wasn't Adolf Hitler. I'm afraid most British historians seem to uh, equate him with Adolf Hitler. This is totally absurd. Um, not least because of what he did for the Jews. Whenever his, his armies went into um, and, and occupied towns, they, they broke open the ghettos, they let the Jews uh, out, they gave civil and religious freedoms to the Jews, they stopped the Jews from being sold into slavery in, in Malta and, uh, and allowed them to build a synagogue for the first time. And this was the Enlightenment on horseback. And yes, the uh, British reviewers, many of them, have been um, uh, critical because they think of Adolf Hitler uh, and Saddam Hussein and, uh, and Colonel Gaddafi as being in some way Napoleonic. But show me one of those dictators who created the Code Napoleon, bringing 42 different legal codes into one, uh, who created the educational system with the Grande École and the Lycée and the Sorbonne, who uh, brought everybody back from France, the émigrés back from France, who built things, built the four bridges. When you go to, uh, to have a romantic weekend in Paris, you will walk over one of Napoleon's bridges or you'll walk along the quays or you'll take advantage of, you'll see some of the beautiful buildings and the, and the great thoroughfares that he built. You know, this was a builder, he was a creator, and he certainly was nothing like the Nazis. And so, yes, I have been criticised by um, some, but I've also not written a hagiography. You know, I do go into 12 pages or something into the... Um, into the massacre at Jaffa, for example. I do go into his ruthlessness and his mistakes, his endless mistakes, not least making his various uh, useless brothers and sisters, uh, kings and, uh, and dukes and, and, and princes. Which also leads to a very good Napoleonic joke, another one, uh, which was um, after they, they, all they did was complain, this family from, uh, who were middle-class family from Corsica. They'd been made kings in four cases and princes and dukes and the rest of it. And they whinged endlessly. And uh, Napoleon shrugged at uh, dinner one evening and said, uh, he said, uh, anyone would have thought that I had misappropriated the legacy of our late father, the king. <laughs> <laughs> Sir. Um, Bob Martin, uh, first, thank you. Um, a, a question on his relative battlefield effectiveness. Um, 46 out of 60, we would call a gentleman's sea. <laughs> would you really? 46 so, victories out of 60 battles. He only, yeah, he only know, drew seven. He lost you know, seven. That, I, I would have thought if that's... Know, a, kind of 75%. Really? If that's, if that's a cricket team, I assure yeah, you, that would be considered pretty good. <laughs> uh, two big losses... Um, could you compare his effectiveness to um, the people in your other wonderful book, Alexander Hamilton Caesar, 
or some of the great battlefield commanders of World War II, Patton, yeah. Rommel, yes. Montgomery. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you're quite right about the two uh, the two defeats. The um, uh, Terrible one at uh, Leipzig and, and Waterloo. I'm, I'm assuming you're uh, you're referring to, um, and uh, and I go into the book obviously in the mistakes that he'd made and, uh, and and all the rest of it. However, it strikes me that that 46 out of 60 is not uh, is not bad at all. Um, he was up against Wellington at the uh, Battle of Waterloo clearly, and Wellington did not make mistakes. Wellington fought uh, 47 battles and didn't lose any of them. Um, and so, uh, so that, although with far smaller forces, you know, the largest force that Wellington ever commanded was 70,000 in the uh, peninsula. Well, that's a, that's a world away from the 615,000 with which uh, Napoleon crossed over into, into um, Russia. And you also, of course, have this uh, thing where you see all these endless coalitions uh, standing up against him. But in fact, the largest coalition in the whole of the Napoleonic Wars were the 21 states, that, uh, 21 countries that went with Napoleon into Russia to fight against, um, uh, to fight against um, uh, the Tsar. So, uh, in which time he also sort of pretty much created the, uh, the, the um, state of Poland for the first time since it had been, uh, it had been um, split into three um, in, 1770, in 1795. So he's got to be, as well as a, as a general, uh, this is why it's difficult to equate him to Patton and Monty and Bradley and the others, um, because as well as being a, uh, a battlefield commander, he's also um, the, uh, the master of Europe, the political uh, figure he's got to... Uh, I mean, in a way, I think the way that... The way, a useful way to look at him is... I think this goes to answer your question and also to, uh, to give a summary of his, uh, of his uh, capacities as a war leader, um, is that he had to have, and did have, the, um, the, the, he, he undertook the same tasks as almost all of your founding fathers. He had to be the, um, the financial brain that brought, um, that brought prosperity through the Banque de France, another thing he created, um, to, uh, to France, um, which, as I said in the beginning of my speech, was a, was a pretty much a, um, a bankrupt country with a 1,000% uh, annual inflation, and he did that. So he was your Alexander Hamilton. He was a um, he promoted science to a wonderful degree, far more than anything that was happening in in Britain. Uh, and in that, that sense, was your uh, Benjamin Franklin. He was a great propagandist, uh, and in that sense, was your uh, Jefferson. He was a hell of a rabble rouser, uh, and in that sense, was your uh, John Adams. He was a military successful military figure, and so he was your George Washington as well. He was also in charge of all of the diplomacy in the way that James Monroe was. He wrote constitutions in the same way that James Madison was. So in, in that sense, ladies and gentlemen, the single figure was a protean, immensely uh, energetic uh, and wide-ranging uh, man of extraordinary capacities. Yes, he had his, his ruthless side. Yes, he did things which were uh, undoubtedly morally wrong. But uh, he also managed to drag his country from 1799, when it was a failed state, to the point by 1810 when it uh, completely dominated Europe. And that, it strikes me, um, therefore, 
allows me to call him something that I, uh, that I do, although it hasn't uh, taken on yet, uh, and that is um, Napoleon the Great. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat>